Hello there, I am Paul Church. I'm the director of the Enemo Group. We're a tech, data, digital talent solution. And this is our podcast, Talent and Growth, where we discuss all things attraction and retention related. And in today's episode, I was fortunate enough to be joined by Greg Savage. Greg is the author of the best-selling book, The Savage Truth. Um, In my opinion, he's the godfather of agency recruitment. But certainly his experience and his insights Uh, are useful for anybody involved in any type of talent acquisition, be it uh, agency side or internal. I was trying to think of what this episode should be called. It could quite simply be called How to Recruit by Greg Savage. I decided to narrow it down a little bit and call it How to Attract and Engage with Talent um, because I think there's so much useful information around the different motivations for talent in 2022, um, how to build rapport with them, how to manage them through that interview and offer process. Um, So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here's Greg. Very happy today to be joined by Greg Savage. Greg, how are you doing? Very good, Paul. Nice to be on your podcast. Thank you very much. You're the first person on my podcast whose book I've got behind me in, uh, in on my bookshelf. So big fan. So really appreciate your time today. Yeah, I like to see it there. I know you just finished it and put it there just for today and it'll be tossed aside straight after the video, but I still I appreciate you. <laughs> good man, good man. Well, look, I think plenty of our audience uh, will know who you are um, from being my people in, in, in the network who are agency or, or TA or whatnot. But for those who don't, there may be one or two. Would you mind just giving a bit of an overview just on your background, your journey and what, what, you, what you're up to now? Sure. Look, it's um, jokes aside. It, it's a long history, so I'll give you the short version, but even then it won't be that short. So I started in recruitment, uh, let me have a look at you, Paul. Yeah, I started in recruitment before you were born, January 1980. And um, you can imagine what the world was like then, pre-internet, 10 years before, six years before the fax machine came. I won't, I won't bore you with those stories, but I was in executive search for three or four years. Then I went to the UK and I lived in London and I worked for a company called Accountancy Personnel, which is the company that Hayes bought to become Hayes Recruitment. Hayes was a logistics company. When I was in London in the 80s, there'd be trucks going down the street, Hayes. They bought a recruitment company called Accountancy Personnel and, and it was so successful for them, they sold all their other businesses. I was there two or three years, uh, Oxford Circus Branch, accounting recruitment, came back to the company in Australia another two or three years. I was made a director when I was about 27. But when Hayes bought the business, notwithstanding the fact they were very nice people, no problem, they weren't gonna give any equity to the senior people as is their right. So I started my own business with two others. That was called Recruitment Solutions. And that was a success story, mate, that in, um, we started with six or seven of us and 10 years later, we listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. So that was only the fourth recruitment company ever to list in Australia. You know, sales of about $40 million at that point and it doubled subsequent years. So it was a pretty exciting thing and um, I'm very proud of that business. And then uh, after I'd been on the board of a public company for a few years, that's a very different world. And it was interesting, but didn't suit my temperament, like having to answer to shareholders and non-executive directors and stuff like that. So I um, took a couple of years off, went to the Rugby World Cup in England, Australia won pool, and thanks for asking. And then uh, I uh, joined a company called Aquint, which is a marketing, digital marketing recruiter out of Boston in the US. I was the international CEO, which if you work for an American company means all our business outside of America which when I started was five offices. When I finished was 35 offices in 17 countries, including London, huge office up there in the corner of Tottenham Court Road and Oxford Street. And um, 
so that was a great journey. And then the 2010 recession, 2009 thing happened. And you'll remember if you were in the industry, I think you were, uh, you'll remember that that was a massive tough time, especially in the UK. And so we engineered a management buyout of 10 of Aquin's offices with their, with their help. And they stayed a minority shareholder. I took the majority share with my management. And we called it Firebrand. We had 10 offices in eight countries. And um, three years later, I sold that business. And for the last eight or nine years, I've been an advisor to the industry. I'm on the board of 16 recruitment companies in a few countries, mostly Australia. And I do um, some speaking. You know, that's, that's for my entertainment and my ego, mostly. Uh, so mostly it's advisory work. And uh, that, that, that is the short version, believe it or not. Um, it could be longer. Fantastic. Appreciate you sharing that, Greg. And as I say, it's great to have you today. And um, you've obviously got a unique perspective on what's going on in the market. Um, and we're well on our way now with 2022. Um, so it's the great resignation, the war for talent, the great counteroffer. What, what are some of the key things you've been seeing out there in the markets? Yeah, I'll tell you a couple of trends. You won't be surprised by them. But the first thing I'll tell you is those, those two little uh, pithy sayings, the great resignation and the war for talent, they're wrong. Both. There is no great resignation. There may have been in the U.S., maybe in the UK. In Australia, of course, there's been high labor mobility as the markets have taken off. There's not a great resignation in the sense that the majority of, and this is very important, the majority of people are not changing jobs. So, you know, the, the media hypes things up. Uh, of course, there are people moving and, 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 and there's confidence and, and we'll talk about that. But the majority, and this is important for recruiters because if the majority of people are not changing jobs, which is true, it's also true that the majority of them are open to being seduced or entertained the idea. And that's very important in a talent short market. So great resignation, uh, hype. The war for talent, wrong language. It's not a war, the metaphor's wrong. It's a seduction, it's not a war at all. It's a seduction uh, because you've got to put the focus, the, the war says, suggests that companies are fighting each other. Of course they are, any competitive environment. It's always the same. Any labor, anything, anything where there's buying and selling, there's competition. Try and buy a house or anything, there's competition. So that's not the point. The point is how are employers going to attract and bring people on board? Um, so those are just to question those sorts of words that people use frustrates me. Um, the, the, the things we should talk about is traditional channels for, for accessing candidates. By that, I mean job boards and LinkedIn. They're becoming increasingly ineffective. They were prior to COVID. COVID, just being uh, exacerbated. So big issue, which we can talk about and will talk about, is that candidates, uh, accessing candidates, needs to become far more sophisticated. Now, I speak mostly about recruitment agencies. That's my heritage, 42 years. Um, but it's no different for talent acquisition. Um, we've got to use different tactics, different strategies, different channels. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, and you'd know this, candidate behavior has changed dramatically. Um, but Recruiters tend to blame candidates, and that's a little bit like, um, I don't know what it's like, but it's not right. Uh, I hear recruiters all the time, oh, the candidate ghosted, ghosted me, they don't return my calls. When I dig into it and I say, so did you interview that person face-to-face -face for an hour in your office? No, Greg, we can't do that. Did you have a one-hour Zoom interview? No. One-hour interview in the office, became a 40-minute Zoom interview, became a 20-minute Zoom interview, became a three-minute phone conversation. And then recruiters are upset that candidates ghost them. They haven't built the rapport, haven't built the relationship. So, um, yeah, candidate behavior is changing, which is could have predicted that any time that when they feel that they have choice, 
what we've actually got to do, you see, COVID made recruitment more remote. Um, you know, we're having this conversation, I know we're in different countries, but interviews, everything else is done like this. And a lot of recruiters became more shallow and more sketchy in their work. And, and, and the dividends of that is lack of commitment from candidates and clients. So as recruitment's got more remote, the real trick for recruiters and talent acquisition, I would say, is to get much more engaged. So we've got to get better at that. We've got to understand candidate behavior. Uh, candidates' priorities, Paul, as you know, have changed. Uh, it used to be, and I'm simplifying it, good salary, good brand, a couple of perks. I'm going to get that guy over the line. People have had a real think about their lives, and I'm generalizing every human being is different. And people's priorities have changed. It's, it's stability. It's flexibility. It's the corporate culture and really understanding it before I'm going to work for you. I mean, there is a very, very, very well-known uh, social media company, the biggest in the world. Five or six years ago, everyone wanted to work there. Now, not so many people want to work there because of some of the publicity and some little unearthing of maybe their corporate ethos. I don't want to go into that because I don't have enough information. But I do know when I talk to my friends in Dublin where there's a big uh, head office of that company, they can't get people to work there because people's uh, priorities for who they work for have changed. So you know about count offers. We can talk about that. Um, uh, that's become epidemic. I think the other big thing, but this is for agency recruiters, is we have to become world champions at client education and coaching and consulting to clients. That's why I'm worried. You know, we were talking off air just before that a lot of new recruiters have never really worked in a, in a candidate, sorry, in a client short market. Jobs are pouring in. And so they're focusing on candidates, quite understandable. But how deep are the client relationships? Because the wheel turns, and it will pull, and you said that to me beforehand. When the wheel turns, wouldn't they, will they have the trust, the credibility to advise those clients? Now's the time we should be talking to clients. I had a case in the office the other day. I walk around recruitment offices all the time, like a, you know, a, a, some sort of lingering uh, stalker or something. I walk around a recruitment, recruitment company, and I heard a recruiter put the phone down where the client had said it was an accounting job. The candidate, the successful candidate must work in our office five days a week from next week, because in Sydney, we can go back to the office five days a week. And the recruiter said, okay, I'll try. And I said, no, what sort of shortlist can you get together if we put that? And he said, well, he'll have second grade candidates. I said, that's the conversation you've got to have. We have to educate. So of course I'll do it, Mr. Client. But let me tell you, and use your credibility. I've filled six jobs like this this quarter. And in each case, the best candidate was looking for a three, two, whatever it is, you know? So that's just an example of how we need to educate clients and it's a recruiter skill that's severely lacking because we still live in the paradigm that the client is king. There's no kings. We're working in, we're working in partnership. And um, uh, so recruiters have got to come much more consultative. And the other thing, Paul, which we, I think is a trend is recruiters haven't yet cottoned on to the value that they bring. And what I mean by that is we're, we used to be that our job was to kind of screen candidates, shortlist them and refer them to the client, do some logistics, set up an interview, then pray that we got an offer. Of course, we've got to screen candidates, but that's a given. It's finding them digitally, which is actually the easier part. Then it's engaging with them, which is a lot harder and most recruiters can't. And then it's bringing them into the hiring process, which is extremely tricky. And then it's managing the process through to acceptance. And that has massive value. For all our 
the area I live in Sydney, you know, right here about near Sydney Harbour, plenty of coffee shops, half of them closed, the other half only doing takeaway. Not because of COVID, everything's open. They just can't find staff, right? They just cannot find staff. And so that is an indication of how um, valuable it is that we do because it'll help businesses thrive. And I think that leads on to the very important thing that if recruiters believed in their value, they would push back clients on things like the hiring process, which they need to, and they would also put their fees up, which we should do. Not gouge, not saying that, but we should put our fees up and we should walk away from bad business. So there's about 10 things for you to um, pick through if you'd like to. Um, that's what I think the current trends are, the main ones. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's plenty there. Um, so let, which, where do we go first? Let's talk about let's talk about the attracting candidates side, because I think we used to talk when I first got into recruitment, we used to talk about, you know, active candidates used to exist. They don't really exist so much anymore, certainly in the markets, which I've been working in tech and data digital. So we're relying more on passive candidates. As you mentioned, things like job boards are almost obsolete. LinkedIn now has absolutely reduced its, its reach in terms of actually being able to communicate with people. So what's your advice around how to attract candidates, how to build rapport with them and getting their full engagement from the off. It's a, it's a, it's a heady cocktail of things. And I just, want to, I just want to build on your comments about active and passive candidates because there's, there's a little way I think about that that might help people. There are no passive candidates. All candidates are active. It's just a matter of timing, right? Just a matter of timing. There's no one listening to this call who's not going to change jobs at some point. Maybe it's tomorrow. Maybe it's in two years. But at some point, Pretty much everyone's going to change jobs. So recruiters need to take a longer term view, Paul, which is not in our ethos, not in my ethos. You know, I'm like, how many interviews did you make today? I'm, I'm that guy. But I've had to learn that it, we need to, we need to uh, take a longer view on candidate acquisition. And that means building brand on LinkedIn. You know, recruiters, no matter how much I've talked about this for 10 years and the rest, you know, people talk about it. Still, most people think any, as soon as the word brands used that it's personal brand, it's a bit wanky. Well, I don't know you, mate, but you contacted me, right? Because of my brand, because I'm, of what I'm on social media. Um, and you thought maybe this guy knows a little bit about what he's talking about, probably proven wrong today. But that is what recruiters need to do. They need to build their brand through a strategic approach to content. And then that can be uh, a step to engagement and that can be a door opener to connecting with these passive candidates in other words people who are not looking to move but are open to a conversation about it and that means it might take time and recruiters say to me so often oh greg that's a great idea but i, I need to place people this one and i'm like yeah i know i've been doing it for 40 years but you're going to be wanting to place people in december aren't you and june next year the wheel will turn and you'll need people so you've got to build a pipeline that's the first thing to think about the second thing is um and they're playing to each other. If you can do that, it's going to be much, you talk about people approaching candidates on LinkedIn. Well, as you know, the, main, the way they do that was, is in-mail, right? And they do it um, in a spammy way and they try to sell the candidate a job. That is completely the wrong way to go about it, okay? It, it, you've been trained like that for years. Give them a great job and hook them in. They're not looking for a job. They don't know you. It's like a stranger walking up to you on the street corner and say, I got a car for you you're immediately going to go, whoa, I'm not really interested in this. Even if you're interested in a car, you're not going to spy from that guy. Who's he? So the lesson is this. Two things that come out of this. First is, well, there's many, but let me just quickly focus on these two things. Um, first thing is 
you've got to understand what candidates look for. And when I say candidates, I mean prospects. They're not actually candidates yet. When approached by a recruiter. They first, it's a stranger. You know, it's like being phoned up by somebody trying to sell you cryptocurrency. Are you going with that? And, yet, and now we've been approached by a spam email and we think it's going to work when that person got 12 spam emails that morning. You've got to open the door through social if you can. And if you are writing an email or making a phone call, which I'm all in favor with if you can do that, um, you've got to first of all explain or, or get across them that you care about finding them the right job. Secondly, that uh, you can be trusted to understand their expertise. And most people don't trust a recruiter because a lot of recruiters don't have that expertise to make the judgment. And third, you're going to do what you say you do, you're going to do. And so what that means is very early on in the process, you've got to try and get those things across. And do you think by just saying to someone, hey, I've got a great job for you. You're doing that? Because how could you know? How could I know what you're looking for? I can see your resume, what you've done, but how do I know where, what, what, how I could pitch a job to you? I don't know what your hot buttons are, what your career plan is, what your personal plans are. I haven't done that. So the secret behind candidate outreach, as I call it, or headhunting as we used to call it, is you don't pitch a job, you pitch a career conversation. So if I'd called you up and said, hey, Paul, I've got a great job for you. It's a director of recruiting in Wales. It's like shooting in the dark. But if I say to you, Paul, I place people at your level. I've placed eight or nine the last week. I've been in this for 15 years. I notice you've been in your same company for eight or nine years. You've done great. Fantastic. By the way, I used to work with Bob Smith, who you worked with. And I just thought, you might be interested to know what's changing in the marketplace. Salaries, some companies are doing well, others not so well. Technology is changing. Would you be interested in a career conversation next week? Uh, maybe Tuesday. Let's get together and have a chat or let's talk on the phone. Yeah, it's slower, it's, but it's more likely to work. So um, I can talk more about this. I can talk about how to make your, your actual in-mails more effective, but I actually would prefer that you didn't just go with the blind in-mail. I would prefer you try to connect and have a conversation that leads to a meeting, which is a career conversation. I mean, I said everyone's, I said everyone's active with just a matter of timing. We don't know who's looking for a job. We don't know who's going to be interested in being pitched a job, but we do know that there's very few people who are not interested in their careers. So that's the conversation. It will lead on to jobs, obviously. Does that make sense, man? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, I think um, I think whether you're in recruitment or if you're in TA, I think the the nature of the beast is that we tend to typically look very short term. We need that quick hit, that instant gratification, but you really have to, and this comes down to how the, how the business is being run, what kind of pressure you're putting on your recruiters or your TA team. Cause you've got to be, they've got to be allowed to start thinking about, okay, am I going to get these people in four to six months time as well as getting my deal in right now? Haven't they? hundred percent. That's a great point. So I'm a great believer in, in, in that you can't manage what you don't measure. And of course, KPIs has got a bad name in recruitment. It's not the concept of measuring success. I mean, nobody becomes good at anything without measuring. Do you think people who play sport don't measure? Musicians, they measure. They measure things and then they improve the things that need to be improved. We need to do that. KPIs have got a bad name because of the way they implemented and managed. And that's exactly right. A great KPI system right now would have included in it um, goals agreed by the consultant about candidate outreach that may only pay off in six months. And that should be part of someone's job instead of how many placements you got today. I mean, that's not very helpful to a guy sitting there with no candidates. You need to help that person with tactics and activities that lead to the outcome. Some of that might be, of course, candidates you've got to get from the database. By the way, that's 
Um, that's another thing that recruitment companies need to do a lot better is to utilize their databases. Um, they are candidate graveyards. And by that, I mean, they're full of dead people. And by that, I'm, well, actually some of them may be dead. We wouldn't know because most recruiters don't engage with them, but they're certainly dead to the recruitment company because they haven't built up any um, ongoing engagement, which could be both digital and in real life. You know, um, th this is a stat for the UK, right? Uh, you would have heard this maybe, but 50% of the placements made by recruitment companies where the candidate who was successful came from a job board, in 50% of those cases, that candidate was already on their database. Mm. I mean, how dysfunctional is that? So we're not even doing the basics, let alone this more sophisticated stuff like you know, building a brand on LinkedIn or being better at outreach. We're not even doing the basics. In fact, I know job boards are now, it's, it, it, the company is Seek in this country, right? It's our biggest job board. They made $268 million this year, this financial year, based on sales of $365 million. That's a 66% profit margin. Now, a good recruitment company, a mixture of tempered perm, if it can get 10% of sales as profit, it's doing world's best practice. And here these guys are getting 66%. So we might say job boards are dying, but you know they probably say, bring on our debt because we're loving it. Because a lot of recruiters are still spending a big chunk of money on SIC because it generates volume. And so they can be busy. But it'd be a hell of a lot better if you spent that time doing some of these things. Um, one other tip before you, you, you come back to me on something else. Um, this, is, this is recruiting like 101 from 40 years ago, but recruiters are not good at asking for referrals. We should, you know, anyone listening to this, any candidate that you've built up any rapport with, you should be asking them for referrals to other candidates all the time. But they do it badly if they do do it. They say to someone, can you tell me, they're talking to a, somebody, talking to a candidate that they're, they're working with it. And, and they say to that candidate, look, we're going to place you, Bob, but is there anyone else at your current place of work that I, I could help? Now, think about that. Most people, if they're leaving a job, they're doing it for healthy reasons. They don't hate their employer. In fact, they're pretty loyal to their employer. Why would they refer a candidate to a, a colleague? You've got to be smart about it. You've got to ask things like, um, is there anyone from your previous places of work? And you'll just get more referrals that way because they don't have the obligation to the place they lived four years ago. Yeah, I remember about Bobby Smith. I saw him in the pub. He's looking great. And then, of course, you can call Bobby Smith and say, hey, I was just talking to Paul Church and he said, blah, blah, blah. And the door, you know, it's doing these small things, Paul, getting 5% better at these moments of truth in recruitment, I call them, where you can influence the outcome. If you get 5% better at those things, you build 50% more. And someone quizzed me on my maths. It's not maths, it's incremental gains. Because if you do all, like if you did this and, uh, and if, and ask everyone you spoke to for a referral, you might pick up two candidates a quarter you didn't have. You place them at an average, I'm talking Australian dollars, $15,000 of fees, that's 60,000 a quarter, 30,000 a quarter. That's um, 120,000 a year, which will be 50% better than you did last year. So, and that's just one thing, that's just asking for referrals. I'm saying get better at all these little moments of truth. 100%. I was always just made me think when I was coming up, the question I was asked, I was taught to ask around referrals is who's the best person you've ever worked with? Exactly. So that's a great, that's a smarter way to do it. Who's the best person you've ever worked with? Um, so they don't, they're not pigeonholed into saying that you're working with this company. You've got, to, you've got to understand that people, you know, I think sometimes in recruitment, we, we, it's an interesting thing. It's a word you wouldn't have 
sort of associated with a recruiter, but I reckon good recruiters are more empathetic than old school recruiters. We need to be empathetic and understand the impact we're having on people and where they are in the situation. So asking someone, hey, have you got anyone sitting next to you who can headhunt? It's, it's low rent, right? It's not the way to go. Yeah, yeah. agreed. Um, we talk, you were talking a minute ago around um, when we're reaching out to candidates, not being too assumptive, not being that used car salesman, not being too prescriptive before we give them the proper diagnosis. So that's all around to, we need to understand our candidates' motivations. What are you seeing in terms of how those motivations have changed over the last few years? Well... To, to my mind, I think I wrote a blog on this and I said, the skill of understanding a candidate's motivation is now the skill for 2022 because it's so wildly changed. And so many recruiters, even in prior to COVID, recruiters were making assumptions about that. I was the worst when I was a recruiter. I'd see a person and go, oh, two years since you chartered accounting? Yep, yep. Oh, I've got four jobs for you. That was me as a brash 25-year-old. I mean, I got better at it and um, I think I'd be better at it now. The phrase I like to use is I think, I, think, I think we've got to be, it's just hard for us in this industry. We've got to be slow to understand, purposely slow to understand. Ask a lot of questions. Build up rapport and trust and ask a lot of questions and really understand, not only understand their motivations, but, understand, but, but be able to rank them, right? Because if, if I said to, as a recruiter, so why are you looking to move? Most candidates who understand that an interview is a performance, will say something bland that they think the recruiter wants to hear, like career advancement. What the fuck does that mean? I mean, your career, my career, they're different things, right? And um, it's not even true. So you've got to dig deeper because what I'm finding is candidates are increasingly interested in the culture of the organization. And, and that sounds a little cliched, but another thing I'd be counseling my clients on is, can you answer the question, Articulately and authentically, this is me as a recruiter talking to my client. If your candidate, if my candidate comes in and says, "Tell me about your culture," how will you answer that question? What evidence will you give? What example? Because that's going to be more powerful potentially than the salary, although every person is different. So, culture. People are. I'm finding that people are much more interested in in a company's employers' uh, social ethos. People are interested in what's their attitude to climate change and how do they treat people during the COVID layoff period and, and how diverse are they? That's all different for different people. But this wasn't a factor, really, except for a few outlines, but now it is. And, and I think people want to really have visibility to the learning path. What training and development am I going to get? And, and, and you know, I've been helping some recruiters on this and they have now worked with their clients to actually, the client will actually bring a young person similar level person to talk about their career path because and i use this word in the best possible way it's a sale it's a, it, you're selling you're selling your company ethos so um uh there there's that salary is often important you're going to get counter offers probably around the dollars or the pounds so you're going to need to 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 make sure most most companies are getting with the program in relation to salaries but sometimes it's been moving so fast like in this country in the construction area uh, counter offers are coming in at 50% of people's base salaries. So um, that is incredibly hard to deal with right, for everybody. Um, so I think, I think understanding and probing on that and questioning and saying, so is that not possible at your current company? And then ranking them. So you've said, Mr. Candidate, you really want a company with a, a collaborative culture, 
your company you're currently with is a bit small, you want a bigger company and you want um, to get some leadership development. So which of those is the most important to you? Which of those is the deal breaker? You know, because you, you, you can't just try and find something. You might find that in the end of the day, that person goes into a job where there's great leadership and they, and they uh, concede on the other things. You've got to understand it. So um, it's, it's completely new to, you know, are you in London? Where are you, mate? Oh, I'm you're based in Brighton, actually. Okay, I know, I know who that is. So London is one of the most transactional recruitment markets in the world. And I say that with love. Um, there are highly consultative recruiters there. It's very diverse. But it's very, prior to COVID, it was getting more and more transactional. There are plenty of recruiters in the UK and they're here too, who never met a client, never spoke to a client. They took their jobs off a portal and candidates they scraped off boards, made a match, made a placement. That's history. That will all be done by machines. It's the consultative skills like the ones I'm talking about. You know, the two big ones, coach your client to make the job more fillable. Have the ability to be an advisor to your client so you can say, Salary's not going to, we need to work on that and your flexibility and coach the client on how to sell the, their ethos and understanding the candidate's motivation to accept. You know, if, if we had a recruiter walk in here, Paul, and they said to you, are you looking for a new job? And you said, yes. And they said to me, are you looking for a job? And I said, yes. Average recruiter goes, well, those guys are equal. But it's not true. You might have just had a bad day at work and flirting with the idea. Not serious, dipping your toe in the water. Me, I got retrenched last week. So I'm deadly serious. Now, there's a massive difference in the placeability if we had equal skills. Right? That's a very stark example. But, but motivation to accept means understanding the stages people are at. So some candidates say I'm looking for a new job. But the simple question, what can you describe the role to me that you'd move for? Oh, I haven't thought that far. Well, how much does that tell you about their motivation to accept? I'm not saying dump them, but you've got to realize that at the very beginning of the journey. What salary are you looking for? Haven't thought about that. They're just flirting. And then the commitment improves and increases as they get more bought into the process till the final stage, which a recruiter will help them get to. They know the job they're looking for. They know the salary. They've worked out the parameters. And they've even checked out in their mind from their current employer. And you know that when the language changes from we to they, when they're talking about their current employer. Um, and so that's the depth of the skill of unearthing a candidate's motivation. And you need it because if you don't, you will get ghosted, you will get counter offers, you will get shocks where people pull out of jobs even after the acceptance stage, which is happening more and more because they've got other, you know, irons in the fire. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I was, I was having this conversation recently and I think you, you talked at the beginning of the conversation around how these these face-to-face -face meetings have turned into reduced Zoom meetings to turn into three-minute phone calls. I've seen it happen just with emails, people, you know, sending candidates, not even a phone call, you know, and I think I do implore when I'm working on the agency side, uh, our consultants to at the very least have a video call with a candidate because you'll thank, you know, you'll thank yourself for doing it when you get to that, you know, offer stage that you've built the rapport along the way. Yeah, it's not. A, you're right. You're 100 percent right. And it, it, it sort of just reinforces my concern that you say at very least have a video call, which suggests that a lot of times they weren't even going to do that. And I know there's speed and everything. But if you were getting more jobs exclusively and working with more candidates exclusively, we could do a better job. But it's also while the, the interview is important, but it's also while the candidates in play. And when I say in play, I mean, it's when you've said to the candidate, I'm going to refer to this client or you've got an interview. You really need to speak to that candidate far more times than you did before. And, and you know, it's always been the case, Paul, that making assumptions is the mother of all cock-ups in recruitment. Making assumptions is almost always 
what screws up the deal. Um, now, you cannot assume that just because a candidate told you at six o'clock on a Monday that yes, they'll accept that job you've got for them at 80,000 tomorrow morning. Totally, Greg, I'll accept it. You cannot excuse, assume that by seven o'clock the next morning, that is still the case. So the smartest question in recruitment is, has anything changed since, I saw, since we spoke last? Because it will have. I mean, what could have changed? You, you had the conversation at six o'clock on a Monday and at five past six, another agency called with some other job. And she went to dinner with her dad and he said, it's not a good time to move. Her boyfriend said, let's go and live in Australia. I don't know. There's a million things. And, and we just, or they've just been seduced with three or four other hot job offers and they've been told 80 is not enough, it's 100. So I've said, said this to recruiters recently and they've looked at me open mouth. If a candidate that's in play, in other words, you are, are working with them to get an interview or debriefing them on interview, whatever it is, if they call you for an update, you lose. And that is completely against the ethos. It's always been, even though it hasn't been verbalized, I will call you when I've got a job or feedback, but in the, any other time you call me and I probably won't take your call. That's recruitment for the last 20 years. And it's, it's not going to fly. You, you want to work, work with that candidate and get their trust and buy-in and understand where that, because that motivation to accept is a fluid thing, Paul. It's going to change over time depending on many factors. And you have to be totally in tune. And what I love about it is it means careers in recruitment are absolutely secure if you are a world champion at, at these influencing skills. If you are a transactional, you'll get hammered by technology. But the beautiful thing is that they have invented any kind of technology that can handle a counteroffer or understand motivation to accept. So until that happens, we're good. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, maybe this is a good time to talk, talk through the, the valley of death and how it should be effectively managed to avoid dropouts or disappointments. Yes. Um, so for reference, first of all, I'll explain what I mean by the valley of death. Yes, so the valley of death, Paul, is that time between the moment your candidate accepts the job and the moment they put their derriere in the client's seat, figuratively speaking, because most of them may not go to the client. But in other words, the day they start. That's always been a bit of a risky period of uh, time. But now it's just a hundredfold more dangerous. And most recruiters, so I, I say to people, I don't want to see any placement dances when you get an offer. An offer is only a third of the way there. I, I'm not even sure I want to see a placement dance when you get an acceptance. I will allow a placement dance on the day they start. Even then there's danger, as we well know. And so that period has to be navigated. And so... I would refer people to a blog I wrote, uh, I don't know, a couple of months ago. It's called Navigating the Valley of Death. It's on the Savage Truth. And just search in the sidebar, Valley of Death. It's got a chart, 19 steps. And I'll go through them very quickly. First of all, when you get an offer and the candidate accepts, support and reinforce the decision. Do it with passion. Do it with authenticity. Well done. That is a fantastic achievement. The shortlist that I had at that client is on the strongest I've seen. And you have secured this whiz-bang job. Well done. Then I would be saying, and I know most recruiters don't do this, and certainly in the UK they don't, and it's hard to do, but it's much better if you can go through the offer document with the candidate. So that might be a letter of offer or a contract. You know, I've seen things go wrong where the candidate gets emailed the letter of offer, and in there's just one line, you will have three weeks holiday. And it's like, that was meant to be four weeks. And by the time you get to speak to them the next day, they've gone cold. So try and manage and control the process. 
And if possible, you know, in the old days, by that I mean two years ago, I would like to make offers face-to-face. -face. I know it's not always possible, particularly now, but certainly do it by bit. Why would you make an offer by telephone when you can actually make it by video where you can see the person's body language? You can see the doubt in their eyes. You can see the hesitation. So um, have that conversation face-to-face. -face. And then go through the contract if you can, um, even if they've got it in front of them. Any problems, address and soothe any jitters. You know, if somebody sees something in the contract that worries them or the letter, they'll talk to their maybe their spouse or partner or mum or dad or friend, and between them, they'll whip it up into a frenzy. So you, your job is to calm it. Oh, yes, I know it says three weeks. Don't worry. It is four. I'll have it sorted out with, your, with the client tonight. Don't, no problems at all. Anything else? Just calm. And then help the candidate. Um, with the resignation letter. I, I know years ago when I used to do more recruiting than I do now, I would have four versions of a resignation letter and I would give it to my candidate and say, when you go and hand your notice in, you type this up. You've got to make sure that the resignation meeting doesn't turn into a consulting meeting, a counseling meeting, which turns into a counteroffer meeting, which turns into an increased salary and a um, promotion. The person's got to go there fully committed. Okay, so you confirm the start date, uh, with the candidate, get the documents signed, coach your client, your client being the hiring company, on key steps. So, for example, if they've said, I'll send you across, across your pension documents or I'll send you across the key to the new building or some, something, make sure they do it. Anything from the client where the, the, the newly hired candidate sees fall off can sow the seeds of doubt. So you coach the candidate on the resignation, you help them with a the resignation letter, you coach the candidates on the resignation meeting. So I, I said to recruiters, okay, this was late last year. I said, hey, how's it going? Is it made a placement? I said, great. When does she start? 8th of January. Uh, cool, when's she handing in a notice? Oh, sometime this week. I said, mate, sometime this week? You don't know? She said, no, she said sometime this week. See that? That is just losing control. Not only should he know, he should have coached her. He should have said, set up a meeting for tomorrow with your client. Call me back or email me when you've got the time. Then I'm going to coach you on the resignation because you're going to go through the counteroffer again at that point. And, and, and there's a massive amount of work that needs to happen in this. So coach them on the resignation meeting. How are you going to feel? What, what's your boss likely to say? Will he lose his temper? Will he guilt trip you? Get them talking about what's like and talk it through. And at that point, you reaffirm their motivation to accept. You get them, you don't tell them, you get them to say, just remind me, Mary, what was it so cool about this job? Why did you accept this job? Well, Greg, it's with a bigger company. It's closer to home. It's this, it's that. Yeah. Just get them totally. And, it, and the big thing is most recruiters lecture, ironically, like I'm doing now, but you don't lecture your candidate, you get them to tell you. It's 20 times more powerful than you telling them. And then you go through the counter of again now. I won't talk about that in detail, but the counteroffer discussion would have started in the very first time you met that candidate. But now um, you go through it again. You get the can you, you, you get the candidate to verbalize how they're going to react to a counteroffer. You get the candidate to verbalize why a counteroffer won't keep them there. Um, all those things which you've already done before. So it's, it's a revision. And then you manage the resignation day. I'll say this to you: if you've got an agreement with the candidate that she's going to hand her notice in at ten o'clock tomorrow, you've also agreement that she's going to call you at eleven. And if she doesn't call you by 12, it didn't happen. Something as bad has happened. I mean, that's a bit of a sweeping statement, but only the case.
So we've got a post-resignation callback. Then you've got to um, have some communications through the notice period. It might be a month, maybe two weeks, might be six weeks, some countries, um, three months in India, would you believe? Um, so that is a time where things can go wrong. So speak to them regularly. And a good thing that some of my clients are doing that has been very powerful is the recruiter has brokered some engagement with the new employer. So um, they've said to the candidate, hey, if we can get you a tour of the offices with one of the younger people, would you like that? Yes, clients arrange that. Um, would you like to sign up for the in-company newsletter? Now, I'm making this up, but anything you can do to get the candidate's mindset that I'm joining this company, I definitely am. Make sure the client's prepared his onboarding or her onboarding. Person doesn't turn up and things aren't there. That can still go wrong at that stage. And then speak to them on day one, day five, all the normal things, and then you can do a place of dance. That's the valley of death. I know it sounds like hard work, but I'm getting people with three out of four offers being turned down or falling over in the valley. So it's worth it. Getting people offers is not the tricky thing in recruitment. Getting acceptance is the tricky thing in recruitment. Yeah, 100% agree. And I'll be sure to post a link to the blog when I put this out on, uh, on LinkedIn as well. Yeah, I've done a video, I think, uh, as well, speaking through this on, on that blog, or maybe it's on my academy, I'm not sure. But there's definitely that cool chart that shows all those steps. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and now a question which I suppose lends itself more to the, the agency recruiters um, who are listening today. Um, but actually, I think it's a good it's a good question to to discuss uh, if you're on the other side as well but should recruiters change the definition of what is a good client so that's important obviously for agencies and how they're working and who they're working with but i think clients need to work out whether they're a good client to work with as well aren't they shouldn't they yeah i think that's very true paul i think it's just as important i mean it's just just angles of the same problem and challenge you know um i challenge my clients all the time about this because they're like hey we just want and then they mentioned the name of a big corporate. We just won. And I'm like, so why are we happy about that? It's mega bank. Well, you're being stupid, Greg. And I'm like, so are the margins good? No, no, no. It's all very low margins. Uh -huh. So we've got to give our candidates away that we can't find at low margins. Yeah, yeah. But it's mega bank. Okay. And, and do people want to work at mega bank? Well, it's not such a cool place to work anymore, but it's mega bank. Because we're so seduced with the idea of bagging the elephant. We want these big clients. Maybe it might be. It's not every big company. I'm not saying that. But often those big clients are slow in their process. They haven't caught on with, uh, there's a lot of bureaucracy. Um, there's a lot of steps. And they're losing the best candidates. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying now scrub big clients off your list. The definition of a good client must include at least these things. Um, the client's working with you in partnership, takes her advice. Because if that doesn't happen, you can't work with them to construct fillable job orders. And that is your job. You've got to construct fillable job orders, not just be an order taker. So that's the first component of a, of a, of a, of a good client. The second is that the client um, understands how to sell their culture and understands that an interview, it isn't all about them assessing the candidate, that the candidate's assessing them. You might say that's obvious. But it's not, people, clients still think the boot's on their foot. They don't even have any socks on, let alone boots. So um, you've got to have a client who understands they've got to sell the culture. You've got to have a client who is prepared to move with the market on things like flexible work practice. And it's more than that. People assume they're going to be able to work from home some of the time, but they've got to have great processes and leadership that 
can manage a, a workforce that works remotely. Um, so a good client would have that. But most of all, and this is the final tick that if the client doesn't have it, they're not a client worth having. It's got to be a place where your top candidates want to work. In other words, they would accept jobs there. And if they won't, why are you bothering? You, you don't have enough candidates for your jobs. I'm not saying just dump that client because you're a fair weather friend and all that, but you need to work with that client. And if the client, like for example, with this client who says, I must have people five days a week in the office, he would not change. And I said, not to him, because I wasn't on the, I said to the candidate, to the recruiter, is that a client worth having? Which of your hot candidates want to work five days a week? They, they want flexibility. So I think those are the com components. And I think for talent acquisition, and I'm reluctant to advise talent acquisition, ex except in as much as the way they should relate to recruiters. I'm very happy to advise them on that. But I would have thought that they want to think about this too. You know, arrogance about everyone who wants to work for mega social media company, come home to bite people. And you won't get this cream of the talent unless you fulfill those components I mentioned and others that go with it. And if you don't get the best talent, you will your company will lose in the commercial race. And that, and that is a big threat because emerging out of COVID, some companies are going to just take a huge march forward and others, not so much. And it's mostly, yes, technology and all that's going to be part of it. Marketing is going to count. But people is the number one driver of company success. So we've got to get the people. So you've got to adjust. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, and then I've, I've, I've got one more question before we, and I want to ask you a little bit about, um, a little bit about, bit about the Savage Truth and also your recruitment academy. But yep. with the, and actually this could lead on to a little bit with the book, I suppose, but with the influx of technology um, and how many things are getting automated and things, so, so many things in the world have changed, what do you think makes up the modern recruiter now? Have the fundamentals changed? How do you expect them to change in the future? I think recruitment now, and this reflection, is a marriage between art and science. It's very lyrical. I could be the Shakespeare of recruitment. It's a marriage between art and science, and that impacts on what a recruiter's skills. What I mean by that, you do need strong, hard skills, digital search, use the technology, and you're right. Big parts of recruitment will be increasingly automated. People talk about AI all the time. There is virtually no AI in recruitment yet. Virtually none. It's automation is what's in recruitment. There's a big difference. Um, and I like to think of it like this. Anything that can be easily predicted can be automated, and it will be done in our business. So really great recruiters, and this is a message for owners of recruitment companies, you should automate everything that machines do better. But the parts that the humans do better, your recruiters have to have those skills. So these influencing skills, these consultative skills, these management of the moments of truth, and there are many of them, taking the job order is now a mass, but to, you know, for a recruiter to consult with a client on the job order, they have to have credibility. And credibility is made up of a mass of things, including knowledge and track record and articulation and a lot of things. So that means recruiters have to, and they can, you know, I started as a recruiter as 21, and you don't have many of those things, but you have to be on a path to developing very highly sophisticated uh, influencing skills. And if you borrow between that phrase, or below that phrase, it's, it, it's questioning skills, it's um, consultative skills, it's persuasion skills, it's credibility, it's, it's having the ability and the knowledge to advise. So that's for both candidates and clients. 
Um, and what that really means is, sure, there are new skills we need to learn around technology. Using your database properly would be a nice start. Building a brand on LinkedIn would be a smart tactic. Um, and there are going to be other things like video interviewing and chatbots and blah, blah, blah. And we should be across all that. The skills that I call the influencing skills, in essence, are no different to the very beginning of time as far as recruitment is concerned. Um, it's just that the emphasis changes according to the market. So I've talked a lot about motivations. I mean, if you were in a client um, job poor market, you still have to understand the motivation to accept. But you know, if you've worked through recessions, in those days, if you got a guy on offer, he took it. He's desperate. You didn't have to worry too much about that. It was much more the client skills. And these things are going to evolve as the market changes. But they're all in the bucket of managing the moments of truth. That part where the recruitment, the recruiter's credibility and influencing skills can change the outcome for the greater good. Taking the job order, interviewing the candidate, not for skills, qualifications, and experience. That's critical, but it's a given. Understanding their motivation, managing the counteroffer, um, briefing a candidate on a job before you send them there. That is a highly sophisticated um, influencing, which will make a huge difference to their ability to get the job. Briefing the candidates, sorry, the clients on the candidates and briefing the, the client on what the candidate wants to hear. We should be doing that. So Mr. Client, this candidate is great. One of the things I'm really interested in is your diversity policy. And I know you've done some brilliant things. Please make sure you talk. That's doing a tiny thing. It's five percenter. But just getting the client to talk about that could be the difference between an acceptance or not. Or not. It's a moment of truth. Debriefing a candidate after the interview. Debriefing a client. Um, make, uh, um, pre closing on a job offer, making the job offer, job offer, the value of debt, counter offer. No job can, no technology can do those things for. And, and frankly, no, not many recruiters can do those things well. And that's, that's the platform I'm speaking from. Let's really work on those things because it won't matter if the market turns. You'll still need those skills. They'll just be more directed to other parts of the process. Um, I don't think even though my future in recruitment is going to be sooner end sooner than yours, I don't think anybody listening to this has to fear AI or technology unless they lack the human skills. If you lack the human skills, then you should fear it because all the parts of the job you're doing now, like scraping people off job boards, screening, are going to be done by machines or by technology anyway. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. I think it's it leads, it's a good time to talk about your book. So I, I have read it. It's not just a prop, I promise you. Uh, the Savage okay. Truth. And I, the reason I like the book um, was actually because I thought that if you look, first of all, I like hearing about recruitment in the 80s and the 90s. I find it quite fascinating um, what it was like back then. But also, I, 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 the fundamentals from then were still applicable now as well, which I, yep. I liked hearing about. But tell me about the, um, I suppose, the, the vision for the book when you wrote it and um, the success it's had and, and why people should read it. Yeah, look, thanks. I'm, I'm proud of the book um, because it captures, uh, I guess it's a, a small part of it is something of a history of the recruitment industry for the 40 years. But the most of it is, um, you know, the learnings I've made from so many mistakes and working with some great people that I learned from and getting a few things right myself. And, and, and I wrote the book because I get asked a lot of questions. I actually being big on LinkedIn and stuff and having a blog that a lot of people read means you get like 40 or 50 questions a week on some component of recruitment. And I try to answer them all, but it's a, it's a bit of a nightmare. So I thought I'd write the book and just encourage people to read it. By the way, it sold 10,000 copies. 
every dollar that I have got from that book goes to charity. It's not a money-making exercise. I, I have a big job. I get well paid for it. I'm on the board of 16 recruitment companies, right? So I have a big job. I'm proud of the book. I want people to read it because I think it will help. And um, if it just helps people just change their view on a few things, then it'll be worthwhile. So the, you can get it off my website. Um, it says The Savage Book. And you know, in, in the UK, you can get it from all the normal places like Amazon and all that. But also there's a link to the, my UK publisher and they, they sell it cheaper, I think. So, But, you know, save yourself two quid. It's not it even is. a coffee in London anymore. No, it is. I think it's a good point as well you made. It is, is like the history of recruitment as well. And the thing is, how many times have you interviewed someone or you talked to someone and said no one grew up wanting to get into recruitment? That's because no one has an idea what it is till they, till they yeah. find out a lot later on. So I really liked it for that purpose as well, because a lot of it resonated. I was like, oh, you know, I recognize that. And, you know, people can really yeah. see what you can achieve as well. Yeah, I think, you know, I would like, actually, there's an exciting development here, which is just, just slightly off topic, but is on topic as well. Um, the RCSA, which is the industry body, I believe, is in negotiations with one of our major universities, and they're coming out with two degrees in recruitment, Bachelor of Commerce, majoring in recruitment, you know, which I'm very excited about because it gives young people, it puts it on their radar. Recruitment, never thought of that. And, you know, just imagine if you had someone had a three-year three degree in recruitment come and start at your company. There's no guarantee they'd be a great recruiter, but at least they would have learned all the basics, right, which we miss. People don't have that you know the book i should tell them down there they should put that on their curriculum but um i think i think more people should think of recruitment as a career i know it's not for everybody um but it, i know i've got a lot of friends who've made a wonderful career out of it and i've certainly had the best of times and you know it's been great fun i've been very fortunate 100%. It should be on a, yeah, there should be a curriculum for it. You know, it, it changes people's lives. I mean, what could be more important yeah. than that, including your own? And what a time just to, to finish off, Greg. Please tell us about the, the, the academy. What could people get? Yeah, so that's that? a new in, initiative. Thanks for raising it, Paul. Um, you know, there's a lot of newbies coming into our industry, thousands. And most recruitment companies have less than 10 staff. So the resources to train them, even at the bigger ones, the bigger ones are better, are limited. And there's a lot of people, one of the sad things, I think there's a lot of people who didn't make it in recruitment who could have if they had more of a, a training and mentoring. And we need to do that better as an industry. My academy is not going to solve that, but it's a, it's a great tool. It's about 35 hours of recruitment training, um, all of it currently by me. So uh, it's, it's, it's speeches around the world I've done. It's a lot of it. And I updated every quarter with new material. So a lot of the stuff we've spoken about today is in this quarter's update. But I made the decision because it's really taking off and people are saying we need this, that too much savage, while too much savage is never enough, I've actually gone to, I'm starting to go to some of my handpicked owners and managers of good recruitment companies who I know have wonderful um, skills and ability to communicate and I'm including them. So the Savage Recruitment Academy will have other people, which I think is great because it's obviously smarter people than me around, a different voice, people have got different ideas. So the first update will go up next month from Mark Smith, who's the CEO of People to People, which is about a hundred person company done exceptionally well. I hired him into recruitment when he was 23, he's 53. So there's a bit of history there. Um, and I'll add people like that. So we're gonna make it current. Yeah, there's also for billing managers, there's a five hour session and then there's for leadership and directors as well. Most of it's recruiter training. Um, and uh, I don't want to go on about this, but it's it's a subscription. It's quarterly. You can pull out at any time. It's very modest. I mean, I think, give you an idea. I think for five licenses, so a small company, it might be 300 pounds a quarter. You know, and if it's a 15-person company, it might be, I can't remember. I'm going to say 600 pounds a quarter. So it's not exactly a big investment to have access. 
Now, it's not the solution. You need to still train people and use it as a prop and a tool for discussion. But it's great to have that consistency, I think, for everybody. Well, that's the Savage Recruitment Academy. Fantastic. Well, Greg, look, I think um, that's, that's, that's just been excellent. Thanks so much for the chat today. Really appreciate your time. Um, it's been a pleasure sitting down with you and, and chatting through recruitment. Love it. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate me. Yeah, sorry, you having me on your on your show. I hope um, hope it helps. And um, if anyone that I know in the UK, and I know a lot of people view this, nice to see you. And I hope to get back to the UK. Maybe I don't know. I used to go over and do speaking tours there, and you know, uh, all that kind of stuff. Mostly they were tied in with the rugby international calendar, obviously. Um, but um, maybe next year. Look forward to it. Good man. Thanks so much, Greg. Cheers.